0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. we are the Lesser Bonaparts. I'm Glenn, and With me, as always, is Daniel. Hey, hey! And oh, uh, oh, man, we were doing the Napoleon Memorial Pub crawl. Oh god! Oh god! And now <laughs> where, we've ended up deep, deep into the Russian wilderness. And oh, uh, why, I don't. We just those Cossacks took all our beer. Um, all I don't of know. our beer. I don't. Where Where is even the next bar, Daniel? I just. There's There's no way There's no way to know. But fortunately. We listen to uh, the fantastic podcast Eastern Border, which all of you guys are listening to right now. Uh, the world's finest guide to uh, all things Soviet and uh, and Eastern European. So maybe, just maybe, Glenn, we'll find a way out of here. Krystops um, is a critical bro, and he provides a a I guess a, a a point of view from the Cold War that we don't often get in the Western world, and he is doing a valuable service to all of us who don't really get this side of the story. Right, Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, please enjoy Eastern Border. And uh, hey, if you think you might like to go on a Napoleon Memorial pub crawl, then you might be our kind of listener. So uh, check out Lesser Bonaparts. Why not? Yeah, find us at lesserbonaparts.com and on iTunes and uh, Lipson. And uh, oh, oh, I'm way deep. Oh, God, it's the Cossacks, Daniel! <laughs> The Cossacks, uh, please enjoy Eastern Border
1: uh, ah! <laughs> Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border, where we take podcasting so seriously that we've received death threats from Putinites, been called CIA agents, and open pro-America propagandists. It's a nice place to be, really. But besides that, this episode is a bit special. February has been dreadful to me, with a few deaths in the family, so with help from my comrades at Dark Myths, and you should really check them all out at darkmyths.org, and the special recommendation for this episode is The Lesser Bonapartes, that a humoristic history show, which made my days in this quite terrible month much happier. I recommend starting with their Jesse James series. So, with the help of these guys, I'm trying to save up enough money to actually visit the United States. That is why this episode is extra special, bit longer than usual, and extra everything. And please, we would be very happy if you would visit patreon.com slash the eastern border, and become our patron, or just donate to us through our website, theeasternborder.lv. Oh, and of course we haven't managed to fix everything in our old shows yet, but that hasn't been forgotten. We'll get to it, eventually. (laughs) Now, on with the show. The odds of a meltdown are 1 in 10,000 years. The plants have safe and reliable controls that are protected from any breakdown with three safety systems. Vitaly Skylarov, Minister of Power and Electrification of Ukraine. In reference to the nuclear reactors in Ukraine, Soviet Life magazine, February 1986. Chernobyl is one of those events that... When you start thinking about it seriously, and attempt to tell a coherent story, just draws you in, humbles you in a way, forces you to rethink quite a lot of things. There are a lot of personal stories in this one, both from various books and documentaries that I've read on the subject, and those few who happened to come from me, actually going and talking with three of the survivors, who live in the city of Ludza, Latvia near our own eastern border so it all became personal in a way this is not my story as much as it is theirs and I'm just a mediator here I hope to do those people justice everything begins with the town of Chernobyl or Chernobyl it's located in what's now in modern-day Ukraine northeast around 130 kilometers from Kiev Chernobyl whose name means absinthe in Russian. The plant, another drink, also sometimes called wormwood, and I hope it's the same plant, because I had to check these up on Google Translate. Strange plant names are not my specialty. (laughs) Anyhow, Chernobyl was a small resort town next to a lake. And it gave its name to the reactor, because at the time when the construction of the reactor began, it was the closest town to it. It... ...actually didn't have anything else to do with the reactor, and remained a relatively small regional center town. The energetical center, the city, built directly next to the reactor... ...for the engineers and other personnel to live, was Pripyat, 18 kilometers north-northeast from Chernobyl. 18 kilometers seems quite far now, does it? I mean, yes, those are just a couple of minutes with a car, but it's quite the distance if you want to take a walk or something. Well, to put things in some perspective, the dead zone around the reactor is 30 kilometers now. It's often called just the zone. And if you've played the Stalker video games, you know it by that name too. Nobody is allowed to live in a zone of 30 kilometer radius around the reactor. That's 2,600 square kilometers. What about 1,000 square miles for you? Thankfully, the radiation levels in the zone have gone down from instantly lethal and hazardous to hazardous if you stick around for too long. So for 135 American dollars, you can visit the place. But you seriously shouldn't stick around for too long. But, and what's interesting is that some people just don't care. It's a forested region, and a thousand square miles is a lot of ground. So, yes, there are people still living there. It's approximated that the number could be somewhere around 500. But while we're talking distances... Now, how do those 18 kilometers from the reactor seem to you, if nobody is allowed to live for 12 more? Uh, Please, please, note this down. This will become important later. The construction of Pripyat and the Chernobyl reactor ...began in February 4th, 1970. By the time of the disaster, around 43,000 people lived there... ...and four energo blocks of the reactor... ...with a 4 million kilowatt total power output were operational. In a photo album, uh, they used to print such in the USSR... ...that's how we got to see things before the internet... ...called Pripyat, released by the... Mistesto publishing house Kiev in early 1986... ...same year when the catastrophe happened... There is a commentary to the pictures. Quote It's called Pripyat because of the beautiful wide river that flows next to it. Connecting Belarusian and Ukrainian Police That's another river. And finally carries its waters to Dnieper. Just think about it. There is a river just next to the reactor. Think about that for a second. It could have been much, much worse. Also, due to the specialization of the city, the average age of the inhabitants was just 26. They're all mostly young people, young engineers, who came here to this newly built city in hopes of leading excellent lives. The city, because of this, also had a disproportionately large number of children. Everything seemed idyllic and nice, but... Let's move to the March 27th, 1986. Almost exactly a month before the catastrophe. That day, a magazine called Literaturnoje Ukraina published their occasional edition. And there was a very interesting article in that magazine called This is Not a Private Affair by Lyubova Kovalevska. It's an article about how the latest reactor expansion was going. They were building the 5th reactor core block and the party had decided in its latest plans that it should be finished in just two years instead of three. Here are some facts from this article. In 1985... 2,538 tons of metal construction material were not delivered to the reactor as planned. That is to say, they were not delivered at all. And, from those metal construction materials that were sent to the reactor, that actually got delivered, most were broken, deficient, or outright spoilage. Well, I have to go on a small tangent here. There's a word in Latvian and Russian that denotes really subpar quality goods. Possibly dangerous and useless, and it's Bratis. This term is used a lot in the works about Chernobyl, but I really cannot find the appropriate term in English. Google Translate tells me it's either rejects or spoilage. But the problem is that this kind of production was not rejected in the USSR, because for the most time, like in this case, that kind of stuff was the only one that actually got delivered to the projects. Why? Well, because of the systemic corruption, of course. So I'll stick to the term spoilage, and I hope that you'll know what I mean now when I'll use this term. Again, sorry for my mistakes, but English is not my native language, and once you dig deep enough in the specific documentation, you can find terms that are hard for me to translate to English precisely. But bear with me, please. So. A huge lack of metallic construction materials, and those that were actually sent, were spoilage. But that's not all. 326 tons of porous covering material to be used to cover the storage space for the used reactor fuel sent by Volzhsk Metallic Structures Factory, spoilage. And around 220 tons of construction materials for the storage facility itself, delivered by the construction materials factory in Kashin, also spoilage. Ljubova also writes that some substandard construction, workmanship and concrete, along with thefts and bureaucratic incompetence, are basically creating a time bomb. What a surprise there, guys. Kovalevska, in her article, states that it's literally impossible to work like this, and that such irresponsibility from, well, everyone, is unacceptable in general, but even more so when it's a nuclear reactor that we're talking about. That was her biggest article. Literaturnaya Ukraina was a general Ukraine magazine, after all, but she also worked in the local Pripyat magazine, Tribuna el Energetica. I won't go out in direct quotes about this, but most of her work consists of criticizing and being worried about what's going on in the reactor. She's a devout communist, at least, that's how, how the book Chernobyl by Yuri Shcherbak presents her to be. So... She really can't stand all the weirdness and the corruption that's going on there. She thinks it's a betrayal of the communist ideals, which it certainly is, but... That system can't function. And if you're a listener to this show, the specifics of her criticism shouldn't surprise you one bit. Even if it's a nuclear reactor that we're talking about here. Lubova Kovalevska states that the situation in the reactor was insane. She literally uses the term insane. Nepotism to the nth degree. A situation where, if you don't know someone in the upper echelons of the administration there, you literally can't get a job. No matter how smart or diligent you were. Whole dynasties were working in the administration of the reactor, as every, quote, important uncle, end quote, had his whole family that needed the benefits. The salaries were huge there. In comparison to everyone else, that is. They all received premiums for working a hazardous job, Administration, for some reason, were included with those workers who actually had to deal with the radiation. The regular workers had written to the newspaper about the situation there. And the nepotism was the main issue. Anonymously, of course, because they were very afraid of the repercussions. If a regular worker or an engineer had made a mistake there, he would get punished. Any mistakes made by the administration which were responsible for the safety, by the way, were just buried in the paperwork, with all their friends, relatives and acquaintances actively defending them. Administration were not the colleagues, but the nobility of the reactor, often being disrespectful and blatantly rude to the rest of the personnel. Dubov says that the reactor was basically a country within a country. And this, all of this, obviously, led to serious discipline problems for the regular reactor personnel as well. As in every factory or project in the USSR, what's the point of working diligently, really? People left early, they weren't careful, they slacked off. The usual. And she adds, quote, And how can the administration's formal calls for a better work ethic be taken seriously, If the administration itself blatantly steals Czech-made toilets from the Pripyat hotel construction site, they stole those and put their old ones in their place, and the workers could see that. And Pripyat wasn't that big, and the word got around quickly. End quote. And the newspaper wasn't even allowed to clearly write about all of this, to even be allowed in the reactor and to be allowed to talk to the administration. She had to get a special permit for the Pripyat committee... Party Committee, to write about this, which just wasn't given if they expected that you would criticize anything going on in the reactor. There were also breaks in the work because of the personnel. Lubova notes that she had, while visiting the reactor, seen and heard dangerous things. Quote, Sometimes there was a whistling in the steam vents. Our psychology is completely ruined. When the foreign delegations arrive, they are afraid of such whistling sounds. They note and understand that it shouldn't be that way. But in our country it's like this, well fuck that, let it whistle, who cares, nothing is broken yet. Lubova wasn't loved by the party. She was worried that something terrible might happen, and wanted to do something about it. But she never intended to become a prophet. But then, in the 25th of April, 1986, the infamous test began. Now, I'm a historian and a philosopher, not a physics expert. So I apologize beforehand if my explanation of the test is a bit incorrect. But I'm using what the sources, namely World Nuclear Association Information Site and Russian Nuclear Information Site, tell me. So, um, as the sites tell me, an inactive nuclear reactor continues to generate a significant amount of res- residual heat. The specific kind of reactors, like in-use Chernobyl... They're called RKBM reactors, but I don't know what that stands for. Now, those will continue to emit 7% of their thermal output following an emergency shutdown. And, because of that, they must continue to be cooled. The Chernobyl reactors used water as a coolant, with the specific reactor 4 filled with the 1,600 individual fuel channels, each requiring a coolant flow of 28,000 liters per hour. As the cooling pumps require electricity to cool the reactor in the event of a power failure, uh, Chernobyl's reactors had three backup diesel generators. These would start up in about 15 seconds, but took 60 to 75 seconds to attain their full speed and efficiency and reach the 5.5 megawatt output required to actually run the main pump. To solve this one-minute gap, which was considered to be an acceptable safety risk, it was theorized and the people in, in the reactor figured out that rota- <coughs> that the rotational energy from the steam turbine, as it wound down under this residual steam pressure, that this rotational energy could be used to generate the electrical power required. Analysis indicated that this residual momentum and steam pressure might be sufficient to run the coolant pumps for 45 seconds bridging the gap between an external power failure and full power from the emergency generators. This potential still needed to be confirmed and the previous tests had ended unsuccessfully. Namely, an initial test carried out in 1982 showed that the voltage of the turbine generator was insufficient. The system was modified and the test was repeated then in 1984, but was unsuccessful again. In 1985, The tests were attempted a third time, but also ended up terribly. The Unit 4 reactor was to be shut down for routine maintenance on the 25th of April 1986. It was decided to take advantage of the shutdown to determine whether, in the event of a loss of station power, the slowing turbine could provide enough electrical power to actually operate the main core cooling water circulating pumps, until the diesel emergency power supply became operative the experimental procedure was intended to run as follows one the reactor was to be running at a low power level between 700 megawatt and 800 megawatt two the steam turbine generator was to be run up to full speed three when these conditions were achieved the steam supply for the turbine generator was to be closed off four Turbine generator performance was to be recorded to determine whether it could provide the bridging power for the coolant pumps until the emergency diesel generators were sequenced to start and provide power to the cooling pumps automatically. And five, after the emergency generators reached normal operating speed and voltage, the turbine generator would be allowed to freewheel down. Okay, so that was the test and what was supposed to go on in the test. And I'm not sure that I perfectly understood everything that I myself was saying there, but I tried my best, and... now we should take a look at the precise timeline, and what exactly happened there. Thankfully, the events have been reconstructed by the precise minutes and seconds, up to a point, of course, so we do have a timeline, including information from primary sources. I'm using a combination of three timelines, with each providing additional details, but if you want a complete timeline for your own reference, you can just google one up. There are quality ones available in English up there in the internet. 25th April, Friday. The test begins. 1 a.m. The reactor was running at full power with normal operation. Steam power was directed to both turbines for the power generators. Slowly, the operators began to reduce power for the test. 1305. I'm gonna use the 24-hour system from now on on because it it seems easier that way. 12 hours after power reduction was initiated, the reactor reached 50% power. Now, only one turbine was needed to take in the decreased amount of steam, caused by the power decrease, and turbine 2 was switched off. 14:00. Under the normal procedures of the test, the reactor would have been reduced to 30% of power, but the Soviet electricity authorities refused to allow this because of an apparent need for electricity elsewhere, So, the reactor remained at 50% of power for another 9 hours. Emergency core cooling system switched off. 26th of April, Saturday, midnight. Alexander Akimov, the unit shift chief in charge of the test, takes over from Tregub, who stays on site. 0028. Control rods transferred from local to global control. Power plummets in the reactor, further rods withdrawn. like I said I am I am reading these and I tried to understand what these mean but I think that the for the accurate depiction to you people out there who are better at physics I think these this data is is important to you it might be important so I'm reading all of it as far as I collected that one. The drop in reactor power from 1500 megawatts to 30 megawatts as far as I understand this is disconcerting. Akimov wants to abort the test, but is overridden by Dyatlov and forced to continue. Anatoly Dyatlov, the deputy chief engineer, supervised the test. I don't know about his relation to that Dyatlov. At the moment, reactor power slipped to 30 megawatts thermal. He insisted <coughs> the operators continue the test. He overrode Akimov's and Toptunov's objections, threatening to hand the shift to Tragub, the previous shift operator who could remain there on, on the site intimidating them into attempting to increase the reactor power. The power stabilized at 200 megawatts at around 1 a.m. and did not rise further due to the continued xenon poisoning of the core. 1 and 3 minutes. 1 a.m. and 3 minutes, that is. Fourth cooling pump connected to right loop. I just love these little lines which are just inserted in the timeline there and and kind of makes all the story very impersonal and... uh... It's a bit scary, but I think I do have to add them in, because at this point a little bit of impersonality and just mechanical re- recollection of the events is necessary. 1 and 19 am. Shutdown signals blocked from the steam drum up separators. The operator blocks automatic shutdown due to low water level and the loss of both turbines because of a fear that a shutdown would abort the test. The operator forces the reactor up to 7% power by removing all but 6 of the control rods. Now, this was a violation of procedure, as the reactor was never built to operate at such a low power. Apparently, these RBMK reactors, the kind that Chernobyl uses, and uh, seriously, if someone knows what the RBMK really stands for, uh, please explain it to to me in in the comment section on our website or, or something, but apparently these reactors are unstable when their cores are are filled with water, which happened in this case. So the operator tried to take over the flow of the water, which was returning from the turbine, uh, manually, and apparently this is extremely difficult because a small temperature changes can, in this case, cause large power fluctuations. The operator was not successful in getting the flow of water corrected, and the reactor... Was getting increasingly unstable. <clears throat> One and nineteen control rods raised. Again, just brilliant one-liners here. One twenty-one caps the fuel channels on charge phase seen jumping in their sockets. That's not good by any standards. Valery Ivanovich perevozchenko the reactor sta- section foreman, was present on the open platform at level plus fifty shortly before the explosion. He witnessed the 350-kilogram blocks atop the fuel channels of the upper biological shield uh, jumping up and down and felt the shock waves through the building structure. The rupture of the pressure channels was in progress. He starts to run down this spiral staircase, skis up on level plus 50, and he starts to run down the spiral staircase to level plus 10 uh, through the direator gallery. So he runs down the spiral staircase to the corridor, heading to the control room, to just tell everyone that, well, uh, guys, these these huge 350 kilogram blocks to the fuel channels—they're—they're they're jumping, and it really doesn't seem to be that good. One twenty-one and fifty seconds, pressure falls in steam drums. One twenty-three and forty seconds, emergency reinsertion of all control rods. As the temperature of the water became too high. Cavitation, which is apparently bubbles, reached the main circulation pumps. The coolant started boiling in the reactor, and the reactor power slowly increased. Toptunov then reported a power issue to Akimov. Akimov presses the the AZ-5 button. I'll try to find a picture of the button. But apparently it's a class 5 emergency one. The control rods, according to indicators, are seized at a depth between 2 and 2 half meters, instead of inserting to the full depth of 7 meters. Basically, they're just there, but they can't go into the full length just to abort everything. Akimov disconnected the clutches of the control rod servos to let the rods descend into the core under their own weight, but the rods just refused to move, they were just stuck there. Hey, guess what? How about spoilage of metal construction parts? Hmm, how about that? The reactor was starting to make rumbling noises by this moment. Akimov was confused. The reactor control panel indicated no water flow and failure of pumps. And I like and I like these lines <clears throat> how they're like basically saying Akimov was just, you know, confused in the in the report. One, twenty three and forty four seconds. Explosion. The and again, I just uh, I, I'm not inventing most of these most of these lines coming from these these timeline reports. they were just posted differently on, on different sites and I try to indicate when they are as cold and inhuman as possible. that that will become a bit more important later. anyway, <clears throat> explosion The reactor reaches 120 times its full power. All the radioactive fuel disintegrates and pressure from all the excess steam which was supposed to go to the turbines. Broke every one of the pressure tubes leading to this explosion. One second later, or in the timeline 1, 23, 45. The 1,000 ton lid above the fuel elements is lifted, first lifted by the first explosion. The release of the radiation starts at this point. Air reaches the reactor and the oxygen results in a graphite fire. The metal of the fuel tubes reacts to the water. This is a chemical reaction which produces hydrogen, and this hydrogen explodes. And this is the second explosion. Burning debris flies into the air and lands onto the roof of Chernobyl Unit 3. There was barely any attention paid to this hydrogen explosion in the Soviet report about the accident. In studies commissioned by the United States government, however, it was concluded that the second explosion was of great significance, and that the original explanation of the accident was incorrect. Richard Wilson of the Harvard University in the US said that the second explosion was considered to be a small nuclear explosion. And and this will also come important later because we'll take a look at the original report and how it ended up. And yeah, it quite possibly might have been a bit bit wrong than usual. But this explosion occurred, the air filled with dust, power went out, and only battery-powered emergency lights stayed in operation. The night shift main circulating pump operator, Valery Khodemchuk, was most likely killed immediately. He was located in the collapsed part of the building in the far end of the southern main circulating pumps. Engine room level plus 10. His body was never recovered and is entombed in the reactor debris. Perivoschenko, the reactor section 4 man, ran into the control room, reporting the collapse of the reactor top. Bražnik ran in from the turbine hall, reporting fire there. Bražnik, Akimov, Davletbayev, and Palomarchuk ran into the turbine hall, having seen, having seen scattered debris and multiple fires on levels 0 and plus 12. 1, 26 and 3 seconds fire alarm gets activated. Now, Akimov, who was kind of in charge of all this at this point, uh, Akimov called the fire station and the chiefs of electrical and other departments, asking for electrical power for coolant pumps, removal of, hydrog- of hydrogen from hydrogen generators and other emergency procedures to stabilize the plant and contain the damage. Internal telephone lines were disabled. Akimov sent Palamarchuk to contact Gorbachenko, Proskurayov, returned from the reactor and reported its state to Akimov and Yatlov. Insisting the reactor was intact, Akimov ordered Stolyarchuk and Busygin to turn on the emergency feedwater pumps. There was a report of a loss of electrical power from Devletbayev, torn cables and electric arcs. Akimov, the chief of, of this uh, shift, sent Metlenko, which is an engineer, ...to the turbine hall to help with the manual opening of the cooling system valves... ...which was expected to take at least 4 hours per valve. Perevoschenko returned and reported that the reactor was destroyed. But, again, Mr. Akimov continued to insist that... No, 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 it's okay. Nothing can go wrong here. One in 10,000 years, it was intact. So Dyatlov ordered reactor cooling with emergency speed. Assuming the reactor was intact and the explosion had been caused by a hydrogen accumulating in the emergency tank of the safety control system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless
0: companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass-
1: Other employees went to the control room reporting damage. Dyatlov went to the backup control room pressing the AZ-5 button there which was the emergency button and disconnecting power to the control rod servo drives. Despite seeing the graphite blocks scattered in the ground outside the plant he still believed the reactor was intact. Kudritsev and Proskurayev returned to report the reactor damage they had seen. But Dyatlov insisted that what they had seen was just the result of an explosion to the emergency tank, claiming that the explosion of the, of the huge 110-cubic-meter tank at level 71 was sufficient to destroy the central hall roof. Dyatlov reported his assumptions as reality to Brykhanov and Fomin, the higher-level managers. In corridor, he met Girkin and Kurgus and sent them to the medical station, he entered the control room of Block 3, ordered Bagdasarov to shut down Reactor 3, then returned to Control Room 4 and ordered Akimov to call the daytime shift and get people to the affected unit, namely Lelchenko, Lelchenko, whose crew had to remove hydrogen from the Generator 8 electrolyzer. I- I'm sorry for all these, all these surnames, but they really appear on the timeline, and it's just honest, actually, meant to mention them. But sorry to be bothering you with maybe a lot of unknown or unknown, unknown uh, names here, because, like I said, I'm combining this list from three, and they each add tiny details here. Alexander Kudritsev and Viktor Prosurkayov, the trainees from other shifts, were present to watch Toptunov and learn. After the explosion, they were sent by Dyatlov or maybe Akimov. This isn't reported accurately, and and it varies in different timelines, to the central hall to turn the handles of the system for manually lowering of the presumably seized control rods. They ran to the gallery to the right of the VRSO unit elevator, found it destroyed, so climbed up in the staircase instead, towards level 36. They missed their colleagues, Kurgus and Gendrich, who who, (coughs) who were using another stairwell. Level 36 was completely destroyed and was covered with rubble. They went through a narrow corridor towards the central hall, entered the reactor hall, and found it blocked with rubble and fragments. Dangling fire hoses were pouring water into the remains of the reactor core. The firemen, not there anymore. The upper biological shield was slanted, jammed to the reactor shaft. A blue and red fire raged in the hole. The minute the two stood above the reactor was enough to darken their bodies with a nuclear 10 and give them a fatal radiation dose. They return to level 10 and to the control room, reporting the situation. Dyatlov insisted they were wrong. The explosion had been caused by a hydrogen-oxygen mixture in the emergency tank and the, that the reactor itself was intact. I repeat, Dyatlov still at this moment insists that no. No, it's it's pretty okay. Valery Ivanovich Перевозченко Pervoz- the reactor section foreman arrived at the control room shortly after the explosions, then returned to search for his comrades. He witnessed the destruction of the reactor building from the broken windows of the of the gallery. With, the, with his face already tanned by radiation, he went to the, the dosimetry room and asked Gorbachenko for radiation levels. Gorbachenko left with Palmarchuk to rescue Sashenok, while this Perveschenko, went through the graphite and fuel containing the radioactive rubble on level 10 to the remains of room 306 in an unsuccessful attempt to locate Khodemchuk, close to, well, debris emitting over 10,000 Rangans per hour. He then went to the control room of uh, Genrich and Kurgus and found it empty. Vomiting and losing consciousness by this time, Perevozhenko returned to the control room to report on the situation. Now, approximately 1 and 28 minutes. Vyacheslav Braznik, the, sen- the senior turbine machinist operator, apparently ran into the control room to report the fire in the turbine hall. Uh, Pyotr Palamarchuk, the Chernobyl exper- ex- Enterprise Group supervisor, together with Razim Davletbayev, apparently administration guys, Followed him back to the turbine room. They witnessed the fires that were on the level 0 and plus 12. They also saw broken oil and water pipes, roof debris on top of turbine 7, and scattered pieces of reactor graphite and fuel, with the linoleum on the floor burning around them. Palomarchuk unsuccessfully attempted to contact Sashonok in room 600- 604, then ran around the turbo generator 8 down to level 0, and urged two men from the Kharkov mobile laboratory assigned to record the Turbine 8 vibrations, to leave. They, however, had both already received a lethal radiation dose. Akimov asked Palomarchuk to look for Gorbachenko and then rescue Sashonok as the communication with the dosimetry room was cut. Palomarchuk met Gorbachenko by the staircase of level plus 27, then they together found and recovered Sashonok's unconscious body. Alexander Yuvchenko was located in his office between reactors 3 and 4, on level 12.5. He described the event as a shockwave that buckled walls, blew doors in, and brought a cloud of milky-gray radioactive dust and steam. The lights went out. He met a badly burned, drenched, and shocked pump operator who asked him to rescue Khodemchuk that quickly proved impossible, as that part of the building did not exist anymore. Yuvchenko, together with a foreman Yuri Tregub, Run out of the building and saw half of the building gone and the reactor emitting a blue glow of ionized air. They returned to the building and met Valery Prevoschenko and two junior technicians, Kudryatsev and Proskuryakov, ordered by Dyatlov or Akimov, again, the accounts vary here, to manually lower the presumably seized control rods. Tregub went to report the extent of damage to the control room. Despite Yuvchenko's explanation that there were no control rods left, the four climbed the stairwell to level 35 to survey the damage. Yuvchenko held open the massive door into the reactor room and the other three proceeded in to locate the control rod mechanism. After no more than a minute of surveying the reactor debris, enough for all three to sustain fatal doses of radiation, they returned, their skin darkened with this so-called nuclear tan in reaction to the high dose of radiation. The three were the first to die in the Moscow hospital. Yuchenko, meanwhile, suffered serious beta burns and gamma burns to his left shoulder, hip, and calf as he kept the radioactive dust-covered door open. It was later estimated that he received a dose of 4.5 zevers. At 3:00, he began vomiting intensely. By 6 in the morning, he could no longer walk. He later spent a year in the Moscow hospital receiving blood and plasma transfusions, and received numerous skin grafts. At the same time, firefighting units under Lieutenant Volodymyr Pravik left the station. And we have a story of those units, which is where we can drop the impersonal timeline, the reconstruction of events presented to us without emotions and empathy, and get back to what I like to do here, the stories of the people. One of the men there at that time was Leonid Petrovich Tetlanikov, 36 at the time later declared a hero of the soviet union chief of the chernobyl nuclear power plant militarized firefighting second unit major of the internal Secur- security service that would be kgb by the way he talks about pravik and about the men in pravik's unit lieutenant pravik again they're firefighters but they all are counted under kgb's command lieutenant pravik was in command of 17 people in his unit volodya pravik was the youngest among them just 24 years old Good-natured, polite, and, well, he was set up a couple of times, because he just couldn't refuse anything to people. He was an amateur filmmaker, and also wrote poetry in his spare time. His wife helped him a lot, she was a kindergarten teacher. Month before the disaster, a daughter was born to them. Because of this, Volodya was often asking Tetlaninkov to make him a safety inspector, instead of an active fireman. Everyone understood that and wanted to help him, But apparently there was just nobody else to replace him. Tatlaninkov was in vacation during the time, which was 38 38 days long for him. The dispatcher called him during the night to arrive immediately. When he arrived, he had seen that the roof of the building was on fire in several places. When I stepped on the roof, I saw that also the third reactor building was on fire in five places. I didn't know at the time that the reactor was still running, but if a roof is burning, then the fires must be put out. I stepped down and started to organize the works because someone had to go there. I couldn't manage to catch a conversation with Pravik that night, only when he was sent to the hospital, and even then for a few minutes. They all had been up there for some 15 or 20 minutes. Out of our squad, only Pravik died. The other five people that died immediately were from the city firefighting squad. Reactor and Pripyat firefighters were separate units. It just so happened that they managed to start putting out the fires in the reactor first. Griorgi Kmit, the driver of one of the fire engines, later also described what happened. We arrived there at 10 or 15 minutes to 2 in the morning. We saw graphite scattered about. Misha asked, is that graphite? I kicked it away, but one of the fires on the other truck picked it up. It's hot, he said. The pieces of graphite were dif- were different sizes, some big, some small... Enough to pick them up. We didn't know much about the radiation. Even those who worked there had no idea. There was no water left in the trucks. Misha filled a cistern and we aimed at the water at the top. Then those boys who died went up to the RUP. Vašček, Kolya, and others in Volody Pravěk. They went up the ladder and I never saw them again. Hero of the Soviet Union, Lieutenant Vladimir Pravěk. Hero of the Soviet Union, Lieutenant Viktor Kibenok. Sergeant Nikolai Vashchuk. Older Sergeant Vasily Ignatenko Older Sergeant Nikolai Tityonok. Sergeant Vladimir Tishura These men were the firefighters that died that night. The rest the rest were harmed for the rest of their lives but were alive in nineteen eighty eight when the book Chernobyl mentions them. I don't know whether they are alive now in twenty sixteen, but most probably not as all of the survivors were hospitalized afterwards and had serious radiation-caused health issues afterwards. The people I've spoken with personally, the three men, well, let's just say that there's a reason why we drank moonshine while we talked in and, but none of them have any children. And why they are specifically asked me to not point out their names, which I will not do because I respect them and would not want to do anything dishonorable, even though none of them speaks English. These men, these firefighters, were the first to respond, the first to take action. They did their duty, and they paid the ultimate price for it. And they weren't the only ones. There were the ambulances. Valentin Belokoin, 26 at the time, and I, again, have to remind you listeners who probably are older than this, everyone involved here was relatively young, because this city was chock full of young people, which just makes it all the more terrible. Valentin Belokoin was a doctor in the Pripyat Ambulance Service fast response unit. He was on duty that night, busy at work. He had responded to two calls already, driving around with his driver and a friend, Anatoly Gurmanov. The first call that night was when a completely drunk man from some party had been gotten so drunk that he had fallen through a window. No defenestration of Pripyat, though. The window was on the first floor and the man was okay, just completely wasted. The second one was a 13-year-old kid with a bronchial asthma. The third was this. The only thing he knew was that there was a fire in the reactor. He didn't hear any explosions that night, just very intense flashes of lights in the night of the empty city. He drove quickly to the station to grab some morphine because there would be some burn victims there. Ordered two extra cars to be signed to him and one was his way. The cars, by the way, were RAF cars. Built in Latvian SSR, they were the top-notch microbuses at the time and were used as the default ambulance cars throughout the USSR. That production line is one thing that we did lose with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Anyway, when uh, they arrived at the reactor, the guard at the gate stopped them and asked where they were going. To the fire, obviously. But they received a the question, why didn't they have any special anti-radiation outfits? But Belokon didn't know that he had to have any. All he knew that it was just a fire at the reactor, not that there were any nuclear meltdowns or anything. So they had no anti-radiation protection. Not on them and not with them to help people either. When inside, he met with the leader of the city firefighters, Kibenok, the one who also became a hero of the Soviet Union, posthumously. Belokon asked, are there any burn victims? And Kibenok replied, no, no, no no burn victims, but some of my guys are starting to feel weird, and Dizzy, could you please take a look? They didn't have any Geiger counters, even. No protection whatsoever, not even respirators. As Belokon stated, something just didn't work out in this system. He says that he started to remember the radiation training that he had received, but what's the point of that if the training hadn't been used at all for a long time? A rather terrible quote from him. We thought, why the hell would we need that? Why would we need to know anything about radiation? Hiroshima, Nagasaki, those those places were so far from us, you know. All he could do all night long is give the injured firefighters painkillers and opiates to make them feel a bit better. Well, he did call the station and asked for potassium iodide because that was the only of anti-radiation pills that everyone had at the time, stashed somewhere in the station, even they took a long time to be found and to arrive there. But even Belokon started to feel terribly ill before those could arrive. He was taken to the station, took a shower, grabbed the iodide pills, and went home to start giving them out to his family and neighbors, and then promptly passed out from radiation. I have to mention here that this Japan analogy, this sense of the fact that the Japanese know what they're doing because of their experiences, prevails among those who survived Chernobyl even today. The people I've talked with about this, which have confirmed me the studies of the quoted people, and added in more details in the written sources, told, when asked about Fukushima, told me that there was nothing to worry about there. Because, you know, they're Japanese. They know what they're doing, they're diligent and have discipline. Unlike what craziness was happening in the USSR. And now, after all of this, this weirdness, let me return to the timeline a bit. There are two entries here that, after working on all of this, make me shiver. Not very short entries, but extremely powerful. 6:35 a.m. 37 fire brigades, with a total of 186 firefighters, have by now been called in. All fires extinguished, with the exception of the fire contained inside reactor four. 8 a.m. New shift clocks on at all four units. 286 men continue to work on the construction of 5th and 6th reactors. If this last line doesn't make you want to punch someone in the face, then I don't even know what will. This attitude, this business as usual, this irresponsibility... So very Soviet. And sadly a bit of foreshadowing on what's to come. Because allowing 286 men to just arrive there and continue to work right next to... The broken reactor is not a nice thing to do. But it's gonna get worse. Saturday morning, 26th of April, 1986. Pripyat. Business as usual. The only thing that's being done by the central administration is that the streets are being washed to make sure that the radioactive dust doesn't spread around. There is militia everywhere, next to schools, stores, buildings, everywhere. But they don't do anything, they're just standing there, watching things happen. But people are walking around, going to swim in the riverside, there are children playing on the streets. But the reactor is clearly visible from Pripyat. It's visible that something is burning and then the wall is crushed. But nobody is doing anything all day long. Annalina Petrovska, one of the party committee secretaries of the Pripyat, reports that the committee was only called for an emergency meeting in 1600 and that they debated for a couple of hours on what to do, until they finally settled to load up cargo helicopters with sand and drop them on the still-burning reactors for burying it. Petrovska reports that the talks about the evacuation of the city only began at 23, or 11 p.m. on the 26th. The evacuation, as ordered by the party committee, started only on the next day, 27th of April, Sunday at 2 p.m., that's 14:00, and was announced in the radio only an hour before. Now think about it. For a whole day, there was no information about what is going on, about that there is any danger whatsoever, and nothing gets done. For more than 24 hours since the explosion, the civilians in Pripet were kept without any information or support, and then ordered to prepare for an evacuation only an hour before it starts. Except, of course except the select few with contacts in the party committee. Instead of saving the children, the party doomed them. There was a massive 2,500 Youth Pioneers convention uh, think about Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts dropped into one in the Pripyat First High School on Saturday 26th. They were planning to do their annual health run on the 27th, up until the very last moment, an hour until the evacuation began, and it began way too late, people were just enjoying their Sunday, sitting in open-air cafes, children playing, adults going swimming, and often in the small, artificially created lake reservoir from which the coolant water for the reactor was taken. This, dear listeners, ranks up extremely high on the crimes against their own people that the Soviets committed list. But it's not number one even. Remember how I told you about the 30-kilometer dead zone and how the town of Chernobyl was 18 kilometers away? And how... Although it was much smaller, it was still center of its region. See, Chernobyl was home to about 14,000 people at the time. Now for the shocking part. That town was only evacuated in the 4th and 5th of May. Eight days after the explosion. Eight days. And you know what's worse? It's the regional center of the whole region. And the 1st of May is one of the largest Soviet celebrations. The International Workers' Day. Not only they didn't evacuate the people they brought in people, children included, for that celebration, which had a mass demonstration and a parade planned for it. And all of this happened. Children from the neighboring towns and villages, even from the safer zones, were brought in, on purpose, to the town of Chernobyl for the celebration. In the 1st of May. In fact, the annual May Day parades were held also in the Ukrainian capital uh, Kiev and the Belarus capital Minsk to emphasize that everything was normal. I... I don't even know how to comment on, comment on that, because this is the darkest of tales out there. The evacuation of the whole district, including the small towns and villages in what is the zone now, wasn't completed until the 8th of May. Afterwards, some of the survivors wrote letters to Kiev and Moscow, to the party administration, complaining about the fact that everything happened so slowly, that nobody had informed them. There were some cases where people found out what had happened not from the Soviet sources, but rather from the radio amateurs who were trying to catch radio-free Europe and had heard about the sudden massive increase of the radiation levels from Swedish sources. The Soviets had tried to cover this whole thing up, up until the very last moment, when it was no longer possible to do so. There is one person who is especially to be blamed for this, second secretary of the Pripyat Party Committee, Molomuj. He gave direct orders in the very early 26th of April to not say anything to the people of Pripyat to not say anything to 43,000 people who were living there. He gave the orders to specifically enforce living in usual. In my eyes, that makes him a mass murderer. But the danger wasn't even over yet. Quoting the newspaper Pravda, May 13th, 1986, an article by the academic Velichov. Reactor has been damaged. It's hard. The heated up active zone is hanging. Almost like hanging. From the top, the reactor has been covered by sand, lead, and clay, which adds to the tension of the construction. Below it, in a special reservoir, there might be water. What will happen with the heated up core crystal? Will it hold, or will it sink to the ground? This is an extremely complicated case. Nobody in the whole world has dealt with such a problem so far, and we cannot afford to make any mistakes here. End quote. Basically, what he's saying is that if the reactor core has reached the water... nobody knows what might have happened. One of the consequences could be a steam explosion, with the massive amounts of water underneath evaporating instantly and creating a highly radioactive cloud. And where that cloud would rain down, death would sure to be followed. There was a need of volunteers, and I use volunteers liberally here, as volunteering in the USSR was often mandatory, to pump out the water from underneath the reactor before it sinks. It was decided that after the water would be pumped out, the reactor itself would be encased in a concrete shell. And of course, with things like this, it fell to the army to do it. Nikolay Akimov, 30 at the time, army captain, says the following. This is a different Akimov than the one mentioned mentioned up there. Turned out that we'd have to work in a zone of very high radiation. We worked in the night with flashlights. We had protective suits on. They were extremely uncomfortable, but we couldn't do otherwise. The situation at the station proved to be such that the work needed to be done extremely fast. We were allowed 20 minutes each to work in the zone. There were 8 of us, and we spent 24 minutes working in the zone. We encountered sever- several difficulties. And although much was done, when we returned, it was discovered that one of the machines had ripped open one of the water pumping rubber pipes. So, picked up a new set of volunteers. The two of the people I spoke with were so-called volunteers in this team. Got dressed up and went back again. The water was under a huge pressure, pipes couldn't hold it, there were leaks, but the water was highly, highly radioactive. We did our best to patch the leaks and to make sure everything was cleared up. The guys showed some real courage out there. It turned out that they had to continue working all night long. Because of the gases and the lack of oxygen, the machines often broke down, and the guys had to go back into the fray every 25-30 minutes to make fuel repairs. The work was only done when it was done that is, when there was no more water left to be pumped out of the reservoir underneath. After this was done, the army used helicopters to determine the radiation levels around the reactor and powered powered concrete on the reactor from on top of it. I could go into the details of that event as well, as it took real courage from the chopper pilot to just hover in the air around 20 meters over the reactor with a measurement instrument hanging on a cable, and how he later died in the Moscow hospital from radiation poisoning but I hope I've shown enough human tragedy to you already. Suffice it to say that the works around the reactor to eliminate risks and to contain the radiation continued throughout May. And many people were involved in these works from all over the USSR, many against their will without preparation or information about what these army conscripts were sent to do. After a while it settled down. I mean, you can have a tour around the zone these days, and there are some people there who still live there. They're not very happy, and it's illegal, but it's cheap. Eventually, they allowed the people to return to Chernobyl and Pripyat to visit those places and pick up their personal belongings, but only those which weren't radioactive, which meant that a lot of family heirlooms and pictures and a lot of other things had to stay back. And it was a lot of things. Remember, they had an hour to prepare for the evacuation, and even then, a lot had to stay back. The people who have left report that a lot of their stuff was deemed to be radioactive and had to be thrown out. Look... It's a mess. All of this mess, and it's hard for me to even do this, but we're nearing the end by now. Have a drink, really. Better have a drink, because it's getting even more depressing, and it won't get better. This is the Soviet Union, after all. And, of course, there were terrible political jokes made about the disaster. And mostly about the system, as usual. The Soviet person isn't stupid. One of such jokes goes like this. Armenian radio holds a song contest in May. Third place, folk song, May the wind not blow from Ukraine. Second place, All Pogacheva, Flow away, cloud, flow away. And the first place to Vladimir Leonchev, And everyone runs, runs, runs away. Yeah, as usual, the Soviet man took some comfort and humor to deal with the situation. Somehow. You see, the court happened afterwards. And the newspaper, Moskovskie Novosti, or the Moscow News, posted the verdict after the court. And it's not a pleasant one. From the official verdict. According to the conclusions that the court technical expertise have made, the safety levels in the Chernobyl nuclear power station weren't high enough, according to the existing standards. In the station, the safety procedures were systematically ignored and a lot of technical errors were made, because of the guilt of the personnel. During the time, from 1980 to 1986, in 27 cases, no investigation had been carried out for the breach of safety and engineering procedures at all. And in 71 cases, the information about such breaches has been covered up. In multiple cases, the events that have caused the reactor machinery to malfunction haven't been registered in the official journal at all. Here's incompetence for you. Proper Soviet incompetence. The end results of the court. Director of the Chernobyl plant, Bruchanov. Sentenced to ten years in prison, same ten years to the head engineer Fomen and his assi- and his assistant Yatlov, five years for the leader of the shift at the time Rogoshkin, the leader of the third reactor core shift Kovalenko got three years in prison, former USSR supervising state inspector director Laushkin got two years. The verdict could not be appealed or argued with. Now, sure, they all made terrible, terrible mistakes, but. Where's the Pripyat party administration? Where's the Kiev oblast administration? Where's the Ukrainian administration? Where is anyone at all responsible for the fact that tens of thousands of people were kept in the dark, that tens of thousands of people ended up with major health problems because of radiation? Where were the bureaucrats and the Parachiks who wanted to save their own asses and make everything look normal when people were risking their own lives out there, dying out there? The heroes who died, saving countless people, didn't do it to save the party officials, who saved their own asses and sent their kids and family away ASAP, while withholding from evacuating the cities to make everything seem normal. And the higher-ups of the reactor? Were those the only ones? In the end, nobody even got any justice. The city was built for those evacuated from Pripyat, but it took five years to do so. And the party and the party officials got, got off scot-free. But even now, we have men and women who are all cancer survivors. Some of them permanently blind, all with major health issues. And no. Almost nobody has paid the price. Not even now. Because in the end, in the end, this was the fault of the Soviet, corrupt, nepotistic system, more than was then the fault of any of the specific individuals involved. That is what the survivors, sad, broken people with tears in their eyes, have told me. I'm inclined to believe them. They have no reason to lie, as they have already given everything they had. Originally, I had intended to take a look at the legends surrounding the Chernobyl disaster in this show as well. I wanted to take a look at the weird, scary myths, but to be honest, research for this episode has shown me that there is truly nothing scarier than ignorance and greed. The stuff that a man can do to his fellow man, that's truly scary. I'm no longer afraid of ghosts. I've learned what happened at Chernobyl. And that's it for today's show. Please join us next time when we look at the, how Gorby reacts to these events and how Glasnost is implemented. And we start to take a look on how the Soviet Union fell. This show was a heavy dark experience but I felt this was necessary and touched me emotionally. But it wasn't my story. It was theirs. And I hope you've understood that. Please, help me visit the United States of America. Support this show on Patreon or donate to us on our homepage. Also, don't forget to check out the Lesser Bonapartes and other Dark Myths shows. And an awesome day to you all! Until next time, Dasvidania comrades! This podcast
0: is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.